Oh, I do love trick-or-treating. You know, when I was a kid, you know, we didn't do it much in the UK, but, you know, occasionally people come round and you give them candy. And now, you know, I get to do the whole thing of being at home, you know, and giving candy out to the kids. It's such a great experience. It is, and that's why I'm preparing. That's why I've got everything that I need to give out candy. But I'm not giving out, I'm not giving out traditional candy because that is just, that is a recipe for a lawsuit. What? Okay, I mean, maybe it's a recipe for, you know, a slight sugar rush and some tooth decay, but lawsuit seems a bit excessive. No, 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 dude. I mean, there's, there's the broken glass in the Smarties, there's the razor blades and the candy apples, and God only knows what's in Blow Pops. I imagine that's aptly named, but I am not giving that out to kids because, I mean, come on, I am, I'm a humanitarian. I think about the kids first. I worry about their safety. I'm a humanitarian as well. I'm also, you know, quite quite fond of other meats. But, you know, that's going a little bit excessive, Brian. I mean, what are you going to give out if you're not giving out candy? All the candy's not safe. So what I'm giving out is pure American beer. Yay, beer. Beer. Welcome, boys and ghouls, to another horrific episode of Digital Noise here on oneofus.net. It's horrific mostly because it's me and Richard again. So. Hello. Hello. Hey, up. <laughs> Sorry, I've been AWOL. I've been busy. Yes, AWOL. I didn't know they used that expression in the UK. Yeah. Oh, there's just a uni- Absent without leave. Yeah, I didn't know it was a universal military thing. Well, you stole most of your military protocols off the British anyway, so, you know. I thought you would just call it going walkabout. No, that's Australians. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's it's to get you to make that face. That's why I do it. That is <laughs> no, that is I'm just my race on Jenny Agatha. So like it's all gone wrong, all gone horribly wrong. <laughs> well, hey guys, this is of course our Blu-ray DVD review podcast that uh, is very light on the professionalism, but very heavy on the recommendations. So aren't <laughs> you lucky and heavy on the puns? Absolutely. Yep. I'm Brian. He's Richard. I still am. He's still Richard, and we're going to get started. But of course, uh, we can't do that before we do a little housekeeping. So I want to remind you that Digital Noise, like all of our content here at One of Us, is available on iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher if you're not much in the way of an iTunes user. You can also follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. That's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. Or you can like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash one of us net and please do consider becoming a subscriber to one of us.net we really do appreciate it that's how we keep bringing you content and hey we just added another uh exclu- subscriber exclusive commentary to the forum area Ooh. featuring not only myself but mr richard whitaker as well and it's uh it's a bit of a classic you I- might I'd say, say so. and uh i'm not gonna say anything other than that because you could readily get that information if you follow us on twitter or <laughs> if you are an actual subscriber so please go check that out Hooray for content, for Yay! subscribers. Hooray. Yeah, exclusive. Mm. Hey, and speaking of our listeners who we love so much, it's time to reach out to the Innisfere and receive train submission. Let's try that again, Joe. <laughs> it's time to reach out to the Innisfere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... got mail that's right the letterbox and may i say torgo your halloween costume is looking i mean you're star lord right no that's just that's that's wednesday attire okay very good torgo our first question comes from neil kelly who asks it was announced recently that 2001 a space odyssey will be re-released in theaters what other classic movies would you love to see get a re-release on the big screen Ooh. 
Oh, God, there were so, so many. Um, yeah, well, and here's here's the problem with us answering this question is that we live in Austin. Yeah, so stuff appears here all the time. We're just yeah. giving stuff in permanent re-release anyway. Between the Paramount Theater and the Alamo Draft House, there is a, a plethora of classic films being released sort of on the big screen, either with 4K restoration or in their original 30 or 75 or 70 millimeter, 35 or 70 millimeter, the numbers that I was trying to get out of my head. Um, it's, word hard. Word hard. Word hard. <laughs> it's a little bit hard for me to... I'm trying to think of a movie I haven't seen on the big screen in one form or fashion here in Austin already. Um, hmm. You know, you know what I haven't seen on the big screen is uh, Friday the 13th. No. I've never seen that on the big screen. Really? Neither have I. Actually, yeah. that would be a good one. That and, you know, Halloween. Because everybody's seen them, mm-hmm. but they are, you know, particularly Halloween... There's some shots that are just going to look spectacular. Absolutely uh, on a, on the full screen. I'd also say the thing. Oh yeah, because uh, you know you it looks great. <laughs> Our John Carpenter obsession continues. It looks <laughs> beautiful, but those those snowscapes are just there's something really magical about them. And a movie we talked about recently on uh, Junk Food Cinema, which is the podcast I do over at Film School Rejects with Cargill, uh, is In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, yes. I would love to sit in a theater and watch Sam Neill sit in a theater and watch himself go through the movie that we just watched in the multiple levels of narrative that that movie has. I will say, I've actually seen Halloween twice on the big screen. I've seen the same print twice because it's the Alamo Drafthouse's print. Uh, most recently at last weekend, actually. And it is, it's glorious because you do a lot of those shots you're talking about do really shine. In 35, so much so that you don't even mind how rosy pink that particular uh, print has turned. It's it's uh, quite beautiful, actually. I'll also go with uh, Kill Bill. Oh yeah, because particularly um, the uh, the fight at the uh, the House of Blue Leaves is just phenomenal. Lie on a full screen, it's you know, and also. You know, yeah, let's go with uh, Lady Snowblood. Well, while we're, yeah, while we're on a roll, why not? You, you can see where, where what Tarantino was paying homage to, <laughs> uh, and that really is something that is going to pay off. And I, I think I've only ever seen that on VHS. Sure, I know it's got a DVD re-release, but yeah, I'd love to see that uh, in, in its you couldn't, format. You couldn't watch all of the films that inspired Kill Bill on the big screen. It would take you years. Yeah, <laughs> you'd have to watch Five Deadly Venoms. You'd have to watch Blowout. You'd have to watch. Um, oh, good God. So many, so, so many films. Uh, but yeah, good stuff. Good stuff all around. Thank you for that question, Neil Kelly. Our next question comes from Rick John Manalastus, I think is how you pronounce that last name. And he says, good evening, lords of digital noise. Richard. Oh. This is specifically a question for Richard. Ooh. Any recent British films that I should look forward to when they come to theaters or DVD Blu-ray? Oh. Since I'm- you live there. Yeah. Obviously, I just commute over. Um, no, I'm going to go with, with uh, two. Um, one of which I have seen, and one of which I haven't. Uh, both of which are currently on the festival circuit. Uh, Duke of Burgundy, uh, which is from the same director who did Barbarian Sound Studio, which I saw during Fantastic Fest. Um, which is, it's been publicised as kind of a a weird erotic drama. It's not. It's hilarious. It is one of the. F- <laughs> it is about the. It, it, the setup sounds just so berserk. Uh, it's about this uh, butterfly institute. I'm already on board. Uh, it's somewhere in random Middle Europe during a period that might be the 1950s or might be the 1970s or might be now, and they're pretending it's the 1950s. Um, and it's about the relationship between this woman and her girlfriend. 
who have this this subdom relationship, but you re- it's quickly clear where the real power of the relationship lies. It's really funny. It's just endlessly uh, hilarious. Me and my wife watched it, and we I think we were the only people laughing because I think everybody else was like slightly uncomfortable at some of the some of the humor. Mm. Uh, there was a human toilet joke that is just a gut buster, um, <laughs> and. Yeah, I that a full recommendation. Uh it's it's easier to absorb than Barbarian Sound Studio, which I love. I think that I, that's that's gonna be one of those things that if you see it, you will just fall in love with. Um and upcoming, but I haven't seen it yet, but I really, really want to, is the Imitation Game, which is the new Benedict Cumberbatch. Um which is about the guy who basically invented the uh the modern computer, uh Alan oh. Turing. Um and his involvement in breaking the German Enigma code during World War II, uh, which was how we you know, really broke German security. Wasn't that a, a Batman Riddler story? Yeah, it should the have been. The Enigma code? Um, but it, the... <laughs> But he's you know, he's an incredibly important figure in the development of, of computing. He well, he should have been regarded as one of the great British heroes of the era. Uh, instead, because he was gay, he was persecuted and ended up committing suicide. Jesus. Um, he's now, people are, are realizing just how incredibly important and influential he is. And, you know, it's Benedict Cumberbatch, who even in subpar films is one of the best things in it <laughs> yeah. hello star trek into darkness i am staring right at you you will just not stop staring into that darkness oh. will you <laughs> goatsy-esque levels of darkness that film I, I, I swear so yeah i'm gonna go with uh, duke of burgundy and uh, the imitation game fair enough fair enough good recommendations all around well thanks guys for your questions we're gonna slam the lid shut on the letterbox and slide it back onto chris's bed where it belongs and move on to the reviews. And just to remind you, everything we talk about will have a little Amazon link right here on the page under the recording. If you click on that link and get to Amazon, even if you don't buy that item, if you buy anything on Amazon via our link, that actually does benefit us. And we very much appreciate it. And we're going to start this week with witching and bitching. bitching. So I guess I'll be taking the position of witching. And, and I'll be... Wait, what? Well, hold on. That's not how this works. This... I figured it was it was good to start with a horror film this week because, Richard, goddammit, every time you're on, you guys talk about a lot of horror films, yes. and then I get on here and it's like, what What do you mean we don't have any horror films to talk about? <laughs> Come on! And this is this is kind of vaguely a horror film. It's I mean, it does deal with horror subjects, but in a very sort of action-comedic way. Well, it can't, I, I would call it a horror comedy, but, but since that obviously was a genre that was recently invented... <laughs> <laughs> Who's saying that? Um. Oh God! It's uh, what's his face? Ryan, what's his face? Who invented Glee? Oh. Um. And he's just had a uh, a, a uh, basically screen. It's called Screen Queens, picked up by Fox. And he said, "We want to invent this new genre called comedy horror." Get that guy out of the room. Yeah. Just, just, just no. You're find not, him, gag him, and throw him in the back of a van. Not allowed to talk to people from now on. Yeah. Someone needs to tell John Landis that they just invented the horror comedy. Yeah. He'll go back and go, "Wow, what was I doing all these years?" Um, Jesus. Yeah. This <laughs> this is Spanish. This is Spanish. This is very. This is actually profoundly Spanish because its original uh, original title, um, uh, "Le Brujeria of Le Bruja de Zugaramundi." Oh, Zugar- we are the worst at accents. Les, les um, Brujas de Zugaramundi. 
The, uh, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> this is terrible. Which is actually uh, that that is the name of the town that was basically the the location of the Spanish version uh, of Salem. Oh, and nice. there were mass witch burnings there, so it actually ties completely into a bit of Spanish history. This is less accurate about that Spanish history. This is a modern day crime comedy witching thing. Yeah, uh, which is really a battle of the sexes comedy. It, you know what's funny about this movie is I know a lot of films, and especially horror films, kind of get a reputation for being misogynist or a reputation for being sort of anti-women. And I don't tend to agree because what, te- what, what that usually amounts to is like there is one character doing one thing who is somehow representative of an entire group. And I don't really find that to be fair. This movie, however... <laughs> Um, I can totally understand why people would find this movie misogynist or anti-women, because not only are we dealing with a coven of witches, but the witches are doing things in the inter, like, in between casting spells, like, talking about the Cosmo articles that they've read, and talking about how they really enjoy, uh, relationships that are just about, and, like, basically having conversations that women would have cast in the same light as, oh, and they're witches as well, and it's just like, uh, But at the same time, all the men are are complete crybaby useless oh no I didn't say this was pro men I said it was anti women it's anti everyone that's true I guess that's true uh, this is uh, um, Alex de Iglesia, de la Iglesia uh, who Last did, Circus, did the Last Circus and The Perfect Crime which yep. is my favourite movie of his um and the basic story is this guy holds up a, a jewellery store with his uh son in tow um the robbery goes wrong, but it's it's beautifully put together. It's this great opening set piece that if you've ever been to Times Square or Las Vegas and you see those guys wandering around... Um, or outside of uh, Man's Chinese Theater in yeah, L.A., yeah. Wear, wear, wearing like superhero suits and stuff like that, uh, and they charge you to take photos. Well, they go in dressed yeah. as those. Yeah. Um, so there is a delightful moment where uh, SpongeBob SquarePants gets gunned down by the police in that, extremely bloody fashion. It was one of the most hilarious heists I think I have ever seen committed to film. I absolutely love it. And so they run, they, they they hijack a cab, try to go over the uh, the French border and and uh, uh, hide and hide the cash. Unfortunately, they decide to go through, as we said, the most witched up place in the entirety of Spain. So obviously things start going horribly wrong. But the witches are there from moment one. I mean, you see the classic. Um, uh, virgin uh, mother and crone figure right those, right that's the first shot including a spectacular ass shot um yeah. of uh katarina bang uh who is a regular in uh delay glazier's films uh, and they, it, it sets the tone of this being slightly sleazy all the characters are slightly disgusting yeah but it's actually pretty damn funny it is funny and it's it's it is actually really enjoyable and like i said it starts off with a an interesting twist on uh, on the heist uh, setup, and then you have the bumbling criminals trying to get away, and then you have the 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 horror elements on top of that. But all of which is played very comedically. And I really, and actually, what I, what I really was impressed with in this film was some of the uh, some of the shot compositions. Like there's a shot where the witches are on the ceiling and kind of running at the same pace as the guys trying to get away from them, but on the ceiling, Lionel yeah. Richie style. And it's it's just a really fun uh, effect that they create in that in that scene. And the, you know, it's, it's happily a farce. You know, this is a, a very much a kind of sex comedy that occasionally somebody will lose a finger or there'll be, you know, a guy chained up downstairs whose skin is falling off because he never gets to see daylight mm. and a small child gets shat out of a giant monster at one point. Yeah, that uh, happens. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> it does in this kind of film. Um, 
Yeah, I think if you are, if, if you're actually uh, a devotee of, of uh, you know, what happened during the Inquisition in Spain, and you're, you might get a little bit upset about the fact that there's some pretty broad comedy. Uh, I mean, I, I comedy think... involving a lot of broads. Hey, 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 ho, ho. Hey, 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 that joke's so old. It's yeah, an I, antique. Yeah, I think Bewitched actually took uh, the Salem witch trials slightly more seriously than, <laughs> than this does. Uh, you know. It, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I'd been waiting to see the second half of this because I saw the first half during Fantastic Fest, and then the uh, the digital key broke and they couldn't get it restarted. So I've been waiting like a year and a half to see. So this. you only and saw it, the witching, yeah. And then when actually I get to see the bitching part of it, actually it pays off. I was yeah. like, oh yeah, I waited a year and a half. I'm pretty happy with this. Yeah, I, I, I especially enjoyed the ending. Uh, Katarina Bang, who you mentioned, is. Nine different types of gorgeous, and it's just so much fun to watch her on screen because the camera loves her as much as I do. And, uh, yeah, no, it's just, it's a really fun movie. It's got, you know, it kind of reminds me of if you took a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale, not the Disney version, but the actual Grimm's Brothers fairy tale, if you created not a Terry whole Gilliam one, version. And did, yes, and did yeah. a Terry Gilliam version, or, or did some broad comedic version uh, with some dark and, and twisted uh, fantasy elements that you'd find in 80s films. I think that kind of is what this movie is beholden to a little bit, and yeah. I think it works. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very much fun. And if you enjoyed uh, De La Glacia's other movies, you know what? His movies are, are very interesting because he can't he doesn't play the same tone throughout every movie. Like even his other comedy, uh, The Perfect Crime, doesn't have quite the same tone as this in terms of how it plays its comedy. So uh, he's a very interesting filmmaker. There's a lot of really great imagery at the beginning of this film as well as at the end, and uh, yeah, I think it's... I think it, it was actually all shot on location as well. Oh, there you go. And it, there, there is a, 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 an evil sidekick who does the best googly eyes since uh, Marty Feldman. Yes, yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, he, he is staring in three different directions at the same time. Yeah, absolutely, and that's, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. From there, we're going to move on to a film that is an accomplishment in a completely different way, in that it is one of the most horrendously boring films I have ever seen, and that is Locked in did you see you watch this movie I, I did i did see locked in oh wait wait did you like this movie i didn't like it but i thought <laughs> i thought there was some kind of interesting it's it's basic problem is that it has the most tedious lead i think i've ever seen uh, yeah and but it just the way okay so the basic premise here is that you have a family they're in a car accident the little girl isn't necessarily in a coma, but she has what they call locked-in syndrome, which I'd really like to know if it's real, because it sounds like made-up movie bullshit, where it's like she's in a coma, but she's actually, she's able to hear and think, just not respond, so she's like trapped in her own body, which is, I know how they describe autism sometimes, but this is like, she's in a vegetative state, but not really, I don't know, it, it sounds like a plot device from the, uh, you know, from the physician's desk From the reference. medical tron. Yes, exactly. I don't know, is it real? I, I, it sounds like it could well be. It sounds plausible. It sounds like, and it also sounds like they have just enough plot to fill a seventy-five-minute movie. Yeah, it's seventy-five minutes. Yeah, which is already like usually for me a little bit of a red flag. But it, but it does. It starts off with a really interestingly shot. And when you got to say it's interesting, it's like saying it's got a lovely personality. Uh, interestingly shot uh, car crash. Uh, which I thought was, you know, the family's going along and the, and the car flips and you kind of get this like weird feeling of you're inside the car, but it's not so overt. It, it does mm. that. I, I think it's because they couldn't afford to do a proper car crash. Yeah. Um, this is not 
a big budget but then the, everything kind of goes a bit weird as the father starts seeing, thinking he's getting messages from the from his daughter through the TV and through the phone when obviously yeah, Carol Ann's contacting him through the TV yeah and, and then you know you, it turns out that the, the ideal family wasn't so ideal and he'd been banging Eliza Dushku on the side who turns up and, and just goes so I get to be completely hoary Fantastic. Yeah, she's more like Eliza douchebag in this movie. Yeah, she plays an. Ex- she's you know you can tell that like she really should be getting better material than this. Yeah. And the major problem is the guy who plays the father is just like oh, not quite Josh Holloway, not quite not uh, quite Ethan Hawke, not quite Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like Ethan Hawke before he went. You know what? I really should start trying. <laughs> uh, it is a spectacular. I will give him credit for his spectacularly floppy haircut. That's rather spectacular. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> really grasping like, things oh, to compliment oh, oh, oh. here. No, I mean, there's, there's kind of an interesting idea, and his it, haircut. Yeah, it, and it takes the idea. Of, you know, it doesn't overplay that there may or may not be something supernatural. There's nothing. Yeah. You know, it doesn't go. Oh, this is super creepy. This is at the end of the day. It's about a father who's trying to come to terms with his own grief about what he did to his his daughter. I don't know. It's just not. It doesn't grab you. Well, okay, two things about this opening car crash. First of all, I did look it up, and locked-in syndrome is a real thing. Uh. LAS, a condition in which a patient is aware but cannot move or communicate verbally due to complete paralysis of nearly all voluntary muscles in the body except for the eyes. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And also, it has one of the most painfully overstated opening songs I have ever heard. Oh, God. The opening song, I shit you not, is... I'm driving home for Christmas. Chris Rea. Chris Rea finally driving got Driving in my car. If, and that's exactly what they're doing in that scene. It, Chris Rea. Like, if, you've, if you've forgotten he existed, which I think most people have. Probably should have. This film will remind you pointedly. I think he must have been a producer or something. Because they name drop him. Yeah, constantly. they do. It's like, oh, what does our daughter like listening to? Chris, Chris Rea. Rea. And they virtually turn around with a CD in, his hand, in their hands and go, available at Best Buy now. Um... <laughs> Yeah, and not Rafi, just just no, Chris Rea. Okay, just, fine, sure. Really, just the most bizarre product placement of the decade. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this, I, I like that they went for a tone that is not as overtly kind of horror or creepy or weird. They try and make it about the, about the family relationships. There's a lot of to and fro in the cutting about oh, when, what's happening, what information you're getting, but you kind of work a lot of it out anyway. I mean, if yeah. you've seen this kind of film. At all, you'll probably go, oh, no, I get it now. Oh, you think you're the sixth sense, and you're really not. Yeah, that's You a, really don't have the clout for this. There, there's the thing about the way this, this plot is constructed that didn't work for me, and, and it was because they pull away from this, this story about this girl in this locked-in state and trying to get messages to the father, and then it becomes all about his infidelity story, and I'm just like, remember that other movie about the girl in the coma that was a lot more interesting than this? Yeah, but you do get to see Eliza Dushku in her underwear. That's fine. Yeah, there you go. That's what the internet is for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you and know, will be forever. And then there was like there are little things throughout the movie that really irked me. Like the sound of the heart rate monitor is the sound of whenever you set your alarm on your iPhone six <laughs> and it goes off. It's that sound instead of an actual beep. And I was like, why? And then and then throughout the movie, the iPhones would make that sound too. And I'm like. Maybe it's some kind of clue, but then it was never there was never a payoff for it. So I was like, "Oh no, you just were like, oh, we forgot to get a beep sound when we're editing, so we're just gonna uh, give me your phone. Ha <laughs> ha, that'll work." Well, there is kind of a payoff, but you know, then you it means you're being emotionally invested enough in the last ten minutes to really go, "Oh, well, that's what you were doing." Ah, uh, see, that's um, it means you noticing that and staying committed. And I just couldn't, you know. I mean, full points to making a film. Yeah. Congratulations, you made a movie. Yeah, you, um, you made a movie, and it's just, I don't know. It, it, it To me, is it's a very bland, very generic, like you said, Sixth Sense wannabe that 
that I can't I can't get invested in at all. In fact, I was just kind of like, even though it was only seventy five minutes long, I was like, please end, please end, please end. Um, but I've got to say, I mean, the, the two best things about it are the female leads, Eliza Dushku and the actress who played uh, the wife, whose name escapes me, but she actually was was pretty good, and she has a, a really uh, great scene where she Sarah Romer, yeah, Sarah mm-hmm. Romer, when when she uh, confronts her husband, it is really beautifully done, you yeah. know, and I, you know, I was going, I'd like to see her in other stuff, yes, which is you know. This is kind of a sizzle reel for her. I'm going to regard it as that, which explains why it's only 75 minutes long. So beautifully done, in fact, that in that scene and later in the movie, you realize, oddly, that their bathroom is their most is the most beautiful room in their house. Oh, it's huge. And I'm like, wait, wait, why don't you, like, <laughs> put a wall here and put a fourth bedroom or something? Like, you do not... It's like or, a bathroom from, from a boarding school or, or something. Or a garage. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it is enormous. I'm like... And there's just one tub in the middle of it. I'm like, you have to... You know, if you're in the tub, you're going to go, where's the towel? Oh, it, it's in the next acreage. <laughs> that it is. Yeah. That it is. No. I, you know, nice try. And yeah, I want to see Sarah <laughs> Rome with other stuff. Uh, I wish Elias Dushka had a better agent. Yep. There yeah. you go. Well, that was Locked In, a movie I am not locked into by any stretch of the imagination. Was that a pun? It was indeed. Yeah, there we go. We're going to move on to a couple of documentaries we have to talk about this week. The first is Whitey, the United States versus James Bulger. Now, if there's two things that I like, it is great documentaries. And beer. And beer and true crime stories. So that's three things. So counting is not one of my (laughs) six things I mentioned. Um and this movie, this is a really great true crime documentary about Irish gangster Whitey or James Whitey Bulger, who kind of ran Boston in the 80s and 90s. And the more I watch this documentary, the more I realize could not be more the inspiration for Jack Nicholson and The oh, Departed. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So it's like, yes, I understand The Departed's a remake of Infernal Affairs, but there's a reason it's in Boston, and there's a reason Jack Nicholson is an Irish gangster in that movie. Yeah. He's playing James Bulger. Yeah. Because James Bulger was a guy who was not only, you know, violently in control of organized crime in Boston, but he was also a guy who may or may not have been an FBI informant. And what this documentary is really about is not just, not just Bulger, not just his crimes, but the FBI and the corruption that was going on at the time and how they actually protected him to the point that he was able to manipulate the system. And even during, okay, I'll get to that in a second. What did you think overall of this documentary, Richard? There's something that's so incredible that happens in this documentary that I've never seen before, and we really need to talk about. But well, I want to get your I mean, impressions this is, overall. This is uh, Joe Berlinger, who I think is one of the best documentarians out there at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he his work uh, before everybody else really started noticing it on the uh, the uh, the Paradise Lost uh, movies mm-hmm. um, was was phenomenal. You know, his uh, and, and you know people bitch and complain about the Metallica documentary, some kind of monster. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a documentary about a band falling apart. Right. And he stuck around and went, I'm going to show this band in all its craziness, all its eccentricities, everything that's going wrong with it. I'm going to be honest about who they are, even if it makes them look like crazy bastards. Um, <laughs> and he does, the, he does that same thing again here. He finds the real story. Because the real story, like, everybody knows Whitey Bulger was you know, just a monster. Absolutely. You know, even people who liked him went, oh, no, he's. I don't trust him to not kill me. He's a son of a bitch. Um, but the, I mean, two of his victims were his girlfriends, for fuck's sakes. And this is this question of, you know, he's a monster, but was he a monster with a code? Because mm-hmm. when he comes to trial, the FBI is basically saying he was an informant for us for all these years, which is why we just didn't manage to ever bring him in. Well, he gets outraged by this. 
and says, I was never an informant. You guys were on the take. Now you're trying to say that I was an informant to cover up for your own corruption. Right. Um, and he basically ran roughshod over South Boston for decades. Yeah. Uh, you know, they when they finally bring him to trial, it's like 19 murders. Yeah. Personally, that he did. Never mind all the people that he ordered to be killed. Um, but the, then... Why is he allowed to get away with 19 murders? Is it because he's he's a, an FBI informant and the FBI is turning a blind eye because they're getting bigger fish? Well, then the question is, is, is there a bigger fish than Whitey Bulger? Uh, with 19 corpses stacking up, one has to say no. Right. But then, if he's not an informant, why didn't they bring him in? And that's what this is really about. Um, and there's some incredible interviews with family members of, of, uh, of the murder victims who just sit there and go, why? Yeah. And why are they covering this up? And even if he goes down for this, do I really feel that justice has been served? Because if the people who let him walk around all that time aren't being uh, aren't being arrested, mm-hmm. aren't being charged, and is it is the only reason they're not being charged because it makes the American criminal justice system look so bad, yeah. so bad? Hell, okay. So there is compelling evidence in this documentary that. Maybe not what Bulger's saying is exactly what happened, but there is definitely corruption going on because during the documentary, the first person we speak to is a, a liquor store owner that was shaken down by Bulger, you know, in the in the eighties, and he's finally going to testify at the trial, and he's very excited about it because he's like, I've lived in fear of this man for so long. And Bulger was on the run. They didn't catch Bulger uh, until what two thousand? Uh, I want to say it was like two thousand. Eight two thousand nine, yeah. and then that like was that? in ca- that was in California. Yeah, they didn't even catch him in Boston. No, they, he <laughs> fled because someone tipped him off. It, you know, they arrested his two captains, but somehow Bolger knew that there was an FBI indictment coming down, and he skipped town, which is another interesting piece of evidence. And then the, the one one of the really just berserk bits is that the guy that uh, the Metro the Boston Metro sends uh, to. Uh, uh, head up the investigation to where he's gone is an officer whose brother said that his life was saved by Bulger. And they said, "Well, yeah, clearly. Yeah. Like, how much interest is going to be going to be in finding this guy?" And this is, you know, this is a pretty depressing movie because that that same liquor store owner who we actually interview several times throughout the movie suddenly uh, he's dismissed. He gets very upset, like he's dismissed from being a witness. And then he disappears, and then they find him dead. Yeah. During the filming of the documentary, it literally something happened where he was not he was not handled correctly as a witness, and he ended up dead. Yeah. Like it is like holy shit, there is some nasty stuff going on in the government, not just with Whitey Bulger, but somebody yeah. allowed this witness to be dismissed from the case, and then allowed his location to be. Uh, revealed to somebody in Bulger's camp on the outside, and they killed him. Yeah, during the fucking documentary, they killed him. Yeah, this is—it's an ex- uh, and the fact that the you kind of have multi multiple generations of corruption in this because mm-hmm. what you have is the long period where Boston where Boston PD and the the local FBI office are turning a blind eye to him for whatever right. reasons, whichever version of events you want to, you, you're going to subscribe to, and then as time goes on, people realize, well, hang on. If we admit, if we bring Bulger in <laughs> at this point, he's just going to say, well, no. And like the, the whole, t- you know, not just the people he was, re- you know, that he was dealing with, whether he was bribing them or whether he was reporting to them, mm-hmm. not only do they come down, they take everybody down with them. And the entirety of the justice system in, in Boston collapses overnight. 
who's going to stand by and do this? And it's a, it's it's pretty bleak, mm. you know, because you, you feel there's there's not just corruption, but there's cover up on on top of cover up on top of cover up on top of cover up. Uh, this is a just. A sterling documentary. Yeah. yeah. It, it's an important documentary to watch. I mean, not only to understand the history of, of organized crime in Boston, but to also understand that, you know, there's corruption at a very high level within even the most, uh, you know, premier law enforcement agency on the planet. This is another documentary that proves that 30 Feet from Stardom shouldn't have won the Oscar last year. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not bitter. No, not I'm at not all. I'm not bitter. Not bitter at all. But when, you know, 70-year-old Academy members go, I don't want to see something about crime or murders in Indonesia. Let's watch something nice about ladies in sparkly dresses. I am going to bear a grudge for a long period of time. And here's where I'm going to slip in a sports reference and this whole belief that sports and geekdom are two completely different camps. It's the exact same problem that uh, the NFL has right now with its referees, the the Academy has with its voters, is that they're far too old (laughs) and can't tell what they're looking at. That's the issue for both the Academy voting body and NFL officiating. <laughs> please please come back. Everybody's getting off by sporting reference. It's no, all right. I will continue to make them. I will jam them down I'll your throat talk, and tap I'll it down with a chimney sweep brush. You do that. I'll talk about cricket and we lose every single listener we've got left. Including me. Yeah, uh, there we go. <laughs> Shortest podcast ever. There you go. Uh, the, the next uh, documentary we're going to talk about, which I didn't get a chance to see, is As the Palaces Burn, but also sounds like a really fascinating story. Richard, tell us about As the Palaces Burn. Uh... 2012, uh, Lamb of God, the biggest, one of the biggest selling metal bands on the planet, uh, goes on tour. And they get to the Czech Republic, and they haven't been there in a couple of years. They're really eager to to be there. They're, they wanted they, to check that country off their list. Oh, stop that. No. Um, uh, well, they've been there before, so they'll be checking it twice. Hey! hey. I did a pun! Hey. I never do puns on this I'm show. I'm going to open the champagne. Woo-woo! Um, and, you know, they, they land the plane... They're doing a tour documentary, uh, and, and they've done several before, but they've just been about the band. This time, they're doing something different. They're talking, you know, they're going around and they're talking to fans uh, of the band around the planet. And you see an interview with somebody in Mexico. Uh, this great interview with this uh, young woman in in India who goes, "Yeah, being a Lamb of God fan in India when you're a twenty-something girl, it's a little bit difficult sometimes. People get upset at you." Uh, and it's just really fascinating material. And then they get to the Czech Republic. And basically a SWAT team comes onto the plane and arrests the vocalist of Lamb of God, Randy Blythe, and says, um, yeah, we're arresting you for manslaughter. And what had happened is that a gig two years earlier, um, one of Lamb of God's fans who'd been stage diving, uh, something happens, he develops uh, cerebral, uh, cerebral hemorrhaging and dies. And the Czech authorities decide that Randy Blythe is responsible. And oh, man. So and he, you know, he's like, well, what is this? And he is um, some, some of this material that isn't actually in the film. Uh, it's in his upcoming book, and I've also talked to Randy because uh, he's going to be appearing at the Housecore Horror Film Festival this weekend. Right, right. We're going to be talking about this at length. Uh, you know, he gets dumped into a prison that was actually uh, where the Nazis executed um, Czech freedom fighters during World War Two, and the Jesus. guillotine the guillotine they used was down the road was down the uh, the, the corridor from his cell. He could see it. Good God! Um, and this and this is a basically a tale of a in part of. Uh, you know, Lamb of God fans, but then this, this, you know, disappearing into this super complicated legal system he doesn't understand, where the evidentiary process is completely alien to him. And and the thing was, he'd got 
clean and sober two years earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was going to die. One of the earlier tour docs, you know, there's him getting into a massive fight with one of his, one with another member of the band, the bassist. And almost kills him because he's like, you are completely out of fucking control. And suddenly he's got his life back together. They're hugely successful. And, you know, this this drops on him. Mm-hmm. And this is basically about the court case. And it, it, there's no, there's never a moment of victory. I mean, now, you know, it's public knowledge now because Randy's out. Um, he was exonerated. They said, look, we, you know, we shouldn't have bought these charges. We're really sorry. But there's a dead kid. And, Somebody's you know, got to go down. For yeah, it. and well, not even that. But you know, the you know, when Randy talks about it, you know, he says, you know, this this just because I don't go to jail for this doesn't mean this kid's not dead. Right. right. And it's a it's a film about the relationship between bands and their fans, and when something bad happens, you know, what what is what happens then to the band? Right. How do they deal with it? Again, this is another crime, uh, and, and it changes halfway through from this tour documentary to this holy shit, you know. Is is the vocalist going to go down for ten years in a Czech mm-hmm. prison? Which is like you do not wish on your worst worst enemy. Right. Um, and it's you know it's really just one of those things in films that says, look, I mean, you cannot count on life to go easy on you. Just shit will happen. You have no idea it's going to come down the pipe, and it's about how you deal with it. It's about how you contend with the fact that your world can collapse at any moment. Um, and it's it's really powerful stuff. Even if you don't like Clam of God, uh, this is a really powerful documentary because it's about one man contending with a world he just did. You know, he you know you're doing everything right. It also shows you know that you know, people in bands don't make big money these days. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great moment where they where they uh, his bail is set. And uh, the uh, the prosecutor goes, oh, no, that's not high enough. I want it to be high. And the judge goes, okay, because that's how the Czech, Czech uh, legal system works. And it's like, oh, we want it to be about how much money Randy Blythe makes in a year. And you can see him go, <laughs> who told you that? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, you know, it, it's darkly funny, but it's really impressive. And the, there's a second disc of outtakes and extra material that is worth watching. You know, you, you this could have easily been a four-hour documentary and would have been powerful all the way through. Wow. Well, I'll have to check that out. That sounds that sounds terrifying and hilarious at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about a film that I got a chance to see that I don't believe Richard did. Nope. Um, let me take you guys back a few years to the time I watched this 1969 flick by Jess Franco called Venus and Furs. Did you say Venus? Yes, Venus okay, and Furs. Okay, just checking. <laughs> it is Jess Franco. Yeah, that's true. Venus and Furs was about a woman who is found dead on the beach uh, by a trumpet player who then comes back to life to get revenge on the, the sadist who killed her. And also on trumpeteers. And there's just, I, I call it the trumpet on the beach movie because throughout the whole movie, there's just this guy, this lonely trumpeter on the beach who's just like playing away and it's like, what the fuck, Jess Franco? Uh, but every time she kills someone, we cut to this house where she's descending the staircase in this giant mink stole, and this song just starts up that goes, Venus and furs will be smiling. And it's like, and then it just goes to the next scene, and I'm like, oh, okay, next week on Venus and furs. <laughs> it's a very odd film, to say the least. So when I heard that Roma Polanski was making a film called Venus and Fur, I thought it was going to be a remake of Jess Franco's Venus and Furs. But um, but actually, there's a novel written by Leopold von uh, Sacher Masek, who is is that where the term sadomasochism comes from? Is this guy's last name? 
No, he's. I think. Yeah, I think. I think the masochist bit. Yeah. Okay. So basically, this novel is about this guy having these kind of pent up desires to be owned, to be humiliated, to be dominated by a woman. And so, in the movie, in in Roma Polanski's Venus and Fur, uh, Matthew, I'm never gonna. Uh, Amalric, I believe is how you pronounce it, the bad guy from Quantum of Solace. Yeah. Uh, and the guy from Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He he stars as a director who is putting together this two-person show uh, based on the novel Venus and Fur. And he's holding auditions at the beginning of the movie, and they're already over. He hasn't found anyone he likes for the actress role. And then this woman comes in, this woman who's a complete mess. She she's uh, The way she talks is very vulgar. She's dressed... Uh, as if she's already gotten the part, she's wearing like lingerie, and then she's like, "No, no, I'm here to audition." She won't. She never shuts up. Like anytime he tries to voice any kind of uh, protest to what, she, it's all about what she wants to do. He keeps trying to voice protest, like, "No, I'm going home. The auditions are over." She's like, "Fine, fine, whatever." But you know, I should really be this part. I know this part. And so, look, I even bought a dress. Here, help me put on the dress. And he's like, "No, fine." So he ends up allowing her to audition, and she knows the whole play. She like forwards and backwards. She knows every line. And it, they start to do this more and more elaborate audition, and then she starts to kind of grill him up, because he, uh, the director character played by uh, Amaric, also adapted this particular stage version, so she's kind of harping on him about things in the book and how they're sexist, and he disagrees, and they're at each other's throats, and then she convinces him that he should play the male part, and they go through the whole... So what this movie's really about is you start to understand that this director is very much like the character from the novel and his desires... And the movie kind of blurs the line between performance and reality. And as they're rehearsing the play, you start to see tinges of her taking that more dominant uh, position in the relationship in, in the real world and how that translates to the play. So it's kind of a play within a play type of film. And I actually really enjoyed it. I think, I think the, first of all, the performances are outstanding. Uh, not only uh, Amaric, but Emmanuel uh, Signet, who plays Vonda. This is, this is where like you really get the meta aspect. The character in the play is named Vonda, and so is she. Like, yeah. oh, I just happen to have that name, too. Yeah, happen to. Um, so that's kind of where, you know, furthering the, the blurred lines between performance and reality and um, and what this director really is all about, even if he won't admit to it. And it's it, it's really interesting. The performances are great. I really like the little touches that Polanski does throughout the throughout the movie to kind of make you realize that, you know, these these people are inhabiting these characters in one way or another. And if I had a complaint, I just think that the ending's a little... I don't know. I, th- I felt like it was building up to something bigger. I, I have to say, I, I think of the, on the list of, of directors who should make films about directors indulging their sexual proclivities... Shouldn't be Roman played. Polanski I had that thought. might want to steer clear of that one. I um, did have that thought while watching this movie that, like, maybe he's not exactly the right... To, but then again... Maybe he's exactly the right director to make a movie about a director indulging his sexual fantasies. However, the character in this, uh, in, in this, both the play and the movie definitely pays for that, you know, indulgence. Like it's not, it's not a situation where he, he gets away scot free and just can't come to the Oscars anymore. (laughs) Yes, again, on the list of people who shouldn't make films about directors who don't get away scot free, I was like, oh no. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah, that's the thing is, I understand that, uh, that people have a, have a problem with Polanski, and they should. Like, what he did was absolutely, uh, despicable. Like, I'm not going to argue that. Um, but I, I, I'm trying to just look at, at, at the film itself. Like, it's the same conversation we got into when we talked about, um, was it Savages? 
that he did with uh, it was John C. Riley and no, yeah, uh, was that the name of the movie? Savages. I want to say it was Savages. I really loved that film. Also, Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we talked about that when we watched Jeepers Creepers as well. But it's like just from if we're just looking at the the film, not the filmmaker. I think this is a really interesting movie that does play with you know how how uh, performance can kind of be uh, a spotlight into you know our our inner selves a little bit and how when we pretend to be other people, sometimes we're more honest when we're ourselves. Like th- there is that element to it, and I think it's it's very well expressed. Like I said, if I had a problem, I think it's just that the ending is a little weak. Uh, but other than that, I thought this was uh, this was a pretty terrific film, and not at all what I was expecting. And, and Polanski, at the end of the day, I think is one of the the kind of major directors who can pull together a big film with strong performances and have a truly meta con- concept to it mm-hmm. without making you feel like you're getting a, a you know sophomore philosophy lecture delivered to you he, exactly you know, he knows yeah. how to actually handle this this kind of material and he, there's enough humor in this and there's enough uh there's enough crude humor with uh with this actress character that i don't feel like it's ever pretentious yeah like it borders on pretensions pretension so many times and then it's brought back from that brink by this character breaking character and saying what the fuck does that line even mean yeah you know and, and i think that they use that so well uh throughout the movie so definitely recommend venus and furs uh, but not if you're a big fan of the Jess Franco one, because you will find nothing about this that, that links them together. Yeah. Except for the fur. All right, moving on from Venus and Furs to Last Supper, which is not about Jesus. Nope. At all. Nope. Uh, it is a, it is a Chinese epic. It's it's very epic. Super duper, super epic. <laughs> this there is, you go. <laughs> this is... Well, this is, uh, yet again, a... a uh, Japanese historical epic uh, dealing with the birth of the, uh, is it the Huan, Dyna- uh, Huan Dynasty? Uh, it's a story... Which dynasty is it? It's the end of the Qin Dynasty. Yes, yeah, the end of the Qin Dynasty going into the... Um, I think it's the Huan Dynasty, but, okay. I, could, but I could be wrong. I don't um, know. I haven't studied my ancient Chinese history in yeah, quite some I mean, time or uh, ever. The basic story uh, of the time is that basically a peasant managed to become emperor uh, pretty much through the very elaborate systems of who gets in through a door first. Yeah. Uh, which, which, which is like this wonderfully formal moment where it's like, did he enter the palace first? Damn it, that probably means he's emperor. Um, uh, but it, you know, it's it's him at it's it's um, is it Emperor Yun? No, Yun is the lord. Uh, Emperor uh, Zin, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, keeping yeah. Emperor Zin. Oh, we're so good on international affairs. Oh my show. god, we're terrible at this. Um, it, it on his final hours on his deathbed as he looks back on what he did and how he became emperor. And basically the two guys that he screwed over, who um, General Zinn, who was his closest advisor, who really gave him the opportunity to screw over the, the other figure. It's the like, Han Dynasty. Okay, let me... Let me uh, the I'm Han just, Dynasty. I'm going to use uh, the, the epic textbook that is Wikipedia, uh, the Wikipedia Britannica here. Uh, it, the story's told in flashbacks from the point of view of 61-year-old Lu Bang, the founding emperor of the Han Dynasty, uh, he's experiencing nightmares, living in fear and apprehension, constantly suspects that someone is trying to kill him. And then he ta- he goes back and he looks at his two enemies, uh, Lord Yu, uh, and then uh, as well as uh, General Zen. So there you have it. This yeah. this movie is a, is kind of you know what it's and it's funny that we we frame it's framed like that because it kind of reminded me the most 
of Once Upon a Time in America. Yes. Where it was like somebody at the end of their life thinking back about how they came up with people and the conflicts they then had with those people. And really that sort of, it has that sort of American dream element. And I know that's kind of presumptuous of me to say because Rags to Riches is a tale as old as the world itself. But it has become a distinctly American thing to say, you know, like, you know, you go from absolute obscurity and poverty to being in a position of power and influence is sort of the... The, you know, tantamount to the American dream. But it, it, it is a man who is realizing very quickly, you know, in his final hours, that he should not, out of the three of them, have been the one who became emperor. Right. That he basically had to abuse their trust and violate everything that he was, that an emperor is supposed to be to achieve mm-hmm. this position. Um, and it, it, it is a man facing his own tragedy. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's slow in places and I think in part that's a byproduct of the uh, the rules about how you make films in China these days I mean there's a few sequences which are which I think made anywhere else on the planet would be gory or would be sexual mm-hmm. but um, a friend of mine who's uh, working on some scripts he's trying, trying to get shot in China you know he said yeah I, I suddenly looked at the rules about what you're allowed to show on screen in a Chinese film and to be able to get it made it's basically nothing Really, you, ha- you know, that's why this has this feel yet again of it's a lot of people kind of wandering around talking to each other and you don't really get much action. Mm-hmm. But I think it does that very well. This is a beautifully layered script um, that steadily shifts away from Liu as you realize that like, he is a secondary player in his own life, even mm-hmm. though he was the emperor and in fact was a very was a very important emperor in the in you know in developing the whole concept of, of you know what is even now contemporary china um but he he's not the man who should have been in charge right and it's it's him his guilt um his dirty secrets what he did who he did it to um and just the cost of ambition and the corrupting force of ambition mm-hmm. and it does that superbly well and i think I was, I guess, I, you know, these are these movies are not my my cup of green tea. Uh, and the reason for that is I find them to be very dry, and I find that the the lack of context for me uh, as as someone from a different nation really does, you know, keep me at arm's length. Um, yeah, the whole the whole going into the the, the palace thing, and you're like, well, well, why does that have any impact? So you got to spend a couple of minutes acclimating yourself it's basically through the film it is basically dibs on a chinese feudal scale yeah like it doesn't make any fucking sense at all it's just like i stepped in there first i'm the emperor now it's like where the hell is that written yeah like tag your emperor like i don't understand that but what i was almost on board with this movie i was almost on board because at the beginning it looked like it was playing with uh some of the conventions a little bit it looked like it was going to add in like i said elements of you know Sergio Leone and then there was like uh it was bordering on a Chinese ghost story at one point very early early in the film and i was like okay that's really interesting and they if they had kept up with either of those two things i think it would have been a lot more enthralled but in the end it just kept falling back on what i had seen Time and time and time and time and time again with these Chinese epics. And, you know, I'm not even necessarily of the, of the camp that just because you've seen something before doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. But when that thing that I've seen before is something I don't typically enjoy. Yeah. That's the problem. I mean, I, I had a, a, I think a lot more of a soft spot for this because I think the performances, uh, particularly of, uh, the emperor and his wife, who is this very much a Lady Macbeth figure as she is Absolutely. trying to preserve the myth of her husband as they move forward. And right. in fact, after he died, she basically be, uh, became a nightmare. Um, you know, they, they're, they're great. Uh, uh, General Zinn could have been a bigger part. 
Uh, it was really fascinating to him. But uh, Yun, who is the Lord, who is the one who should have been the emperor mm-hmm. there's a real sense of kind of damaged pride about him as he as he you know tries to reconstruct his life after he makes every single possible mistake by being a good person and there's this real sense of, of the morality of it is very complicated because he really you know there's a couple of moments where he could have quite easily have dispatched of the man who finally becomes emperor right. and he doesn't and it raises these questions of like well did he do the right thing by being a good person which is really kind of a super complicated, and again, there could be cult- I think there's cultural aspects that we're not quite getting. Right, that's just a cultural yeah. thing. I'll I'll um, hop to that. But it, you know, this is uh, you know beautifully shot as well. I yeah. think this is the thing. I mean, I, I really felt from a on the script side. I, I watched it. and I went, okay, the things that I don't understand, I know what they are that I don't quite understand. So I think from that point, the clarity of this film is really spectacular, um, and there are some just. Just gorgeous scenes. I mean, when they get into the palace, mm-hmm. there's this moment where he's looking up and you get this uh, from the way it's shot and some very subtly done CG, uh, which is it's, it's used very sparingly in this. You get a feeling of like, this is a man who suddenly the ambition switch mm-hmm. has clicked on. Right. And he is different at this moment and from there on and is always running from the person he knows he really is. Right. Um, yeah, I, this is not going to be for everybody again because, like you said, I mean, the, the, the cultural basis of it is so ingrained in the narrative. But I think this is a superior example of what's coming out of China at the moment and, and that we're being allowed to see. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree that if, if you like this type of movie, if this genre is something that does pique your interest, then this is probably one of the premier examples of it. Mm-hmm. This is probably a very stellar, um, you know, paradigm of what these movies can be, and yeah. uh, I do respect it on that level. I also thought it was interesting that the the bow character reminded me a lot of Baron Harkonnen. Yes, <laughs> like he would just show up at, at at these points, and I was like, oh, he's basically uh, providing the same kind of narrative narrative uh hitch that baron harkonnen did so that's uh that's very interesting well that was last supper and from there we're going to move on to the last title we're gonna have a short list this week uh the it's last a rarity, title yeah. you know, it's, it's a it's i think a it's because all, all the studios put out huge box sets of stuff recently yeah uh and they're all going let's not you know let's not tread on each other's toes plus we're in that kind of like little interregnum before they start info dumping all the big releases just before Christmas because we've right. got a shitload of stuff that frankly shouldn't have house room staring <laughs> straight at you Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles which is incoming soon and womp, womp. hate you so much um <laughs> Yeah, we really need to do like before the end of the year. We just need to get get together and just everybody everybody on the one of our staff nominate one film they hated beyond measure and we can't all just do Transformers 4. Well, then what is the point of us even? Come on, Richard. Come <laughs> because on. Because we'll all just spit blood for that one and we have, we'll have we still have bile to spare <laughs> for some other shit storms that erupted this year. Anyway. Well, the last title we're going to talk about is a uh, the first time, I didn't realize this, the first time it's ever been on Blu-ray and I'm very, very surprised that it took this long for that to happen and that is Kingpin. The Fairly Brothers bowling comedy, uh, you might remember, with Bill Murray and Woody Harrelson. Um, you you had seen this prior to this, yeah. the, from 1996. You'd seen this prior to this. I'm Several guessing. times. Yeah. So uh, this is its first time on Blu-ray, which is surprising to me. And it is my favorite Fairly Brothers movie, which sounds 
like a lofty praise, except that I really don't like the Farrelly's at all. So it's it's their film that I actually tolerate the most. Whereas mine, weirdly, is still there's something about Mary where I think they embraced their inner gross out so well. I mean, weirdly, I actually had got subjected to me, myself, and Irene again recently, and <sighs> I kind of was like, oh, this is actually kind of aged better than I expected. Like you, I do not like the Farrelly brothers. Um, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff I really admire about them. Yeah, that you know that they say, look, we're not afraid who we offend. And we're also prepared to, you know, the, the fact that they regularly cast actors with disabilities in their films. Mm-hmm. And it's, and they don't feel the urge to make them, you know, magically wonderful. Nobody learns a lesson from them. <laughs> they can be as dickish as anybody else. And I've always liked that about them. That they just go, we actually cast people and we don't go, oh, look, look, are we, don't we deserve credit for our casting? It's like, no, you just act like everybody else should be acting. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but God, no. They do have an amazing <laughs> ability to get, like, uh, actors who should be much better. Yeah. And be in much, in much more serious projects. I mean, this is kind of the moment where I think, uh, you know, they, they were at their peak and they went, let's do a bowling comedy, which is as offensive as we can get. Um, people's hands come off. <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm like, why? Why? I, like the most low stakes idea is like midwestern bowlers <laughs> seeking revenge on each other. <laughs> like you know, again, I kind of admire them for taking a concept that's just not even dumb. It's kind of mildly offensive that it's even a film, and they play with it. So, but you're a bigger advocate for this film than I am. So, yeah. Well, you know, okay. So, first of all, I have a soft spot for sports comedies. I do. That being said, I also love it when we get, you know, Bill Murray has honed into perfection a certain type of character. And that character is a completely self absorbed, acerbic piece of shit. Like, he really plays the asshole so well. And in Kingpin, he's able to take that ability and play. One of the biggest dickheads he's ever played. Like, you have, like, Frank Cross from Scrooge in the first two acts. Yeah. And then just right below that, you have uh, his character here from Kingpin, uh, whose name is, oh my gosh, uh, Ernie McCracken. So, like, it's like Frank Cross from Scrooge in the first two acts, and then right below that is Ernie McCracken. And I really love how, um, forgive the pun, balls out he goes yeah. with the role. Now, that being said... He's not in most of the movie. Most of the movie is actually about his would-be uh, sort of uh, apprentice. I don't know what you would call him. Is The guy that he was kind of taking under his wing, played by Woody Harrelson, uh, Roy Munson, who is a great bowler himself. But because of some, from some shenanigans that Bill Murray pulls early in the movie, Roy loses a hand and is kind of given up on bowling. His life's hit the shits. He's literally having to fuck his hideous landlady in order to keep staying in his apartment. Like he is at an absolute bottom. And then he meets, uh, he meets an Amish character played by Randy Quaid in one of the funniest Randy Quaid performances out there. Uh, his name's Ishmael and he's great at bowling, but he obviously has never done it professionally because there are certain cultural mores, different, you know, rules that he lives in, in his society that doesn't allow him to travel, doesn't allow him to gamble. And it's, it's really about, Woody Harrelson's character at first manipulating him into gambling so that he can make money and then becoming friends. And then, of course, everything gets uh, more complicated when uh, a woman gets involved. In this case, Claudia, played by Vanessa Angel, who I'm not sure I ever saw in anything else after this. Oh, 
Spies Like Us. Oh, really? Yeah, she was in Spies Like oh, Us. Oh, that would have been before this, though. Yeah. Oh, okay, you're I right. I think this pretty much killed her career. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think after this, we're like, let's all, all walk away. All yeah. walk away. And then she was in Kissing a Fool, Made Men, and... Oh, dear God, I've seen both of those. G-Men oh. G- from Hell... Oh my goodness! Oh, so, she, oh, and of course, Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys. So obviously, this career, the, this movie was the booster career was looking for. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, but I, I like that they have struck a balance in this movie between the crude humor and actual well constructed jokes that are uh, based on the perfect setup and just the right delivery of a punchline. Like it's not just dick and fart jokes. Yeah. Like, the crude humor is there, but it is not a crutch, as I've, I've felt that it is in other Farrelly Brothers movies. So, I really enjoy it, and I think uh, the final, you know, kind of bowl-off between Woody Harrelson and uh, Bill Murray is just one of the most... With Bill Murray's comb-over just flopping, like, gloriously in the breeze. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm never, you know, full-on for them. I kind of, like, admire them more than I like them. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I I think this is kind of that transition film where Bill Murray after this really goes, you know what? I really, I'm better than this shit. I am better than this because he does a he does a really good performance in it. But it's like the moment. This is the last time you see, you know, putsy, big satire, you know, farcical Bill Murray. After this, he starts going, I can do some serious stuff. And it, you know, if you're used to the Bill Murray from. Uh, things like you know, dead roses, mm-hmm. uh, dead flowers, um, broken flowers, broken flowers, yeah. and uh, I really dead like, roses. That took about fifteen <laughs> times to get through that title. <laughs> hey, every rose uh, has its inappropriate title. Uh, and lost in translation. You know, this is this is definitely not that Bill Murray. This no. is big, loud, obnoxious Bill Murray, which you know, there's kind of a joy in, but I think he made the right decision by backing away from this kind of role, and it's kind of a high point for him to go out on. You know, also Randy Quaid, the la- you know the last thing he did before he went completely batshit crazy. <laughs> before he had his comeback. Before he, before he went, ooh, 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 the IRS is is putting you know demon monkeys in my hair <laughs> or whatever it was that happened to him. It's like I got I got all kinds of weird. Uh, yeah, you know, it, does it add anything to have this movie on Blu-ray? Is there going to be a new generation of, of film fans who suddenly go, hey, I've never heard of these Ferrelli brothers? I, I think, you know... It- Ferrelli brothers. <laughs> I, I was thinking of the Fratellis from Goonies. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what? Are we crossing streams here? <laughs> but yes. are, they, are they suddenly... Is this suddenly going to open them up to a whole new, huge generation? Is this just really done because Dumb and Dumber... Two or seven or twenty-five and a half is coming out. Is this, is this the sole reason why this film is being released? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But you know, I mean, they they were of their era, and I think their era passed. And this, I think, is a pointed reminder of why South Park needs to be cancelled as well. Whoa! Yeah, there we go. Whoa! Sure. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, I cannot disagree with you more. I think they're still doing biting social commentary. Oh god! The, the Washington Redskins episode is one of the most pointed. Uh, attacks on the racist uh, football team name that everyone's been... I mean, everyone's given Dan Snyder shit for it, but nobody really attacked them the way that that, uh, Matt and Trey did. Uh, Yeah, but the problem I have with Matt and Trey is that I really think that you can only be dismissive of everybody for so long, and then you have to have a fucking opinion about something. And being rich, white, living in Colorado, and liking weed is not enough. 
Uh, we got completely off point on that. Didn't we, we, we did. did. Like, we did. The hate mail will come in from no, but fans. you know when I, I agree with you because that was my problem with them for a long time. And then there's that episode where Stan gets a bad case of cynicism, and everything sounds like shit. Every every movie is shit, and it's obviously them embracing the fact that that's that's their problem at that moment. And whether they're like, that's why the show looked like it was going to be canceled, looked like it was going to end right there is because it was them going, oh, we hate everything. We can't do this anymore. And I felt like that was a, a moment of, uh, you know, intuition, a moment of uh, insightfulness, you know, personal insightfulness that I, I thought kind of elevated them out of that. But I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to. We'll have yeah. to do a whole I, I podcast. I think, on I think that's what, like when, when the Simpsons, you know, did uh, did for, uh, did, did Gump roast, uh, and they were like, "Yeah, we are the unkillable show, even if we don't want to do it." And there's like an element of like, walk away, try something new, right? Yeah, which the Frelly Brothers did. They went off and did not making movies because no one would give them money. Hey, they did a whole pass uh, and the three stooges. Uh, three stooges, where they basically came out and apologized in the credits. <laughs> all right fair enough well that brings us to the end of the show which also means we need to do a, a giveaway all right and for this week's giveaway we actually have a tv bundle uh, we have for two different winners we're going to have a tv bundle that uh re- revolves around some shows we talked about last week afterlife and in the flesh to uh, UK Supernatural TV series, uh, both of which we have the second season of. And we're going to bundle those together. So two winners are going to each win a copy of Afterlife Season 2 and In the Flesh Season 2. So you're going to win both shows. Two winners, both shows. Uh, And here's the way it's going to work. As you know, we do a sort of creative writing prompt now uh, for our giveaway. So the first thing you want to do is follow at one of us net on Twitter. And then I want you to tweet at us with, uh, take something that's kind of pseudo supernatural, but in a really kitty way. And then tell me uh, what director you'd like to see make a dark, awful version of that movie. <laughs> For example, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenberry. Something like that. So take something that's kind of supernatural in a very fluffy way and tell me what director would make the dark version of that movie. Uh, and then, um, I don't know what to... Uh, we'll call this Afterflesh. Hashtag Afterflesh giveaway. <laughs> and we'll pick two winners and those two winners will each receive both Afterlife Season 2 and In the Flesh Season 2. Aren't you lucky? Yes, you are, because I said you are. Oh, and one thing I should mention before we go, I've, I've completely failed to mention this because I'm not as good at this as, as Chris is, this particular detail. Um, the new Kingpin Blu-ray does have one uh, one new uh, special feature that wasn't on the DVD. It's the it's called Extra Frames with the Fairly Brothers. They're actually at a bowling alley talking about their film, and uh, they, they're <laughs> is bowling. Is that just where they hang out these days? Uh, that might be. Uh, they have. There's also brand new archival stuff that they kind of drop. It's kind of almost like its own TV special, hmm. like way after the fact, but you know, like a new TV special. So that does exist on the Kingpin Blu-ray. I thought I would mention that before we leave, which is what we're gonna do now. Oh, Sad. sadness. Uh, I want to remind you, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow the show at DigiNoiseCast or the website at One of OneOfUsNet or us individually. I'm at BryGuySalisbury. I'm at YorkshireTX. And you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash OneOfUsNet. And please do use those Amazon links and please do consider becoming a subscriber. We've already recorded yet a third horror movie commentary, of a, a secret movie, a secret Ooh. movie that I... That I'm not going to tell you what it is until next week, but uh, it's uh, we also have Nightmare on Elm Street and Night of the Living Dead uh, are also out there for you subscribers. So uh, go ahead and do that. And until next time, I'm going to end the show as I always do, reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Bye. Bye.